So it's going to be Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, for a sermon I've uh, entitled, Has God Rejected His People? Romans 11, 1 to 6. Here's what it says. And I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people who he formed new. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, and they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. But what was the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Well, in the same way, there has also come to be in the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. I don't know if you've been watching the news lately, but there's another uh, chapter to the border crisis going on down in the south, uh, along Texas. Uh, They have a large number of Haitians now who have come in and are hoping to get into the United States. Well, one of the reasons for that is because of the earthquake that took place back on August 14th of this year, which struck that nation with a 7.2 magnitude earthquake. 136,800 buildings were destroyed, 2,200 people died, and another 12,000 were injured. But as bad as that was, Haiti suffered actually a more destructive earthquake back in 2010, when an estimated 316,000 people died, one out of every 30 Haitians. The most deadly earthquake ever to occur on record happened in uh, Sangxi, China in 1556, where 830,000 people died. What causes earthquakes? Well, to answer that question, you have to understand something about the globe that we live on. Uh, Geologists tell us that the center of the earth is made out of molten metal, uh, iron and nickel, it's pretty hot down there. The temperature is 9,392 degrees Fahrenheit. And surrounding that inner core, you have the outer core. And above that, you have the mantle. And then on the very top, you have what's called the crust. And that's the area where the tectonic plates move and shift and slide over the mantle. Now, sometimes what happens is these free-floating tectonic plates will push up against each other and cause immense pressure and then eventually give way. And as it does, a giant amount of kinetic energy is released, which causes the earth to shake and to quake, hence an earthquake. The study of this phenomena is called seismology. Now, you ever heard of the term a seismic shift? It's a phrase that's used to describe a very sudden and dramatic change that upends the status quo. Uh, Prior to the, for instance, prior to the Great Depression, I bet you didn't know this, that black people in this country overwhelmingly voted for Republicans. But then uh, the Democrats started to make headway uh, during FDR's administration and then in the 60s, so it's now to the point where 90% of black people vote for Democrats. But what were to happen if in another three years Donald Trump ran again and 90% of the black people voted for him? That would be called a political seismic shift. It would be an unforeseen, dramatic reversal upending the status quo. Well, in Paul's day, there was a spiritual earthquake that had taken place, which resulted in a seismic shift. Israel, the nation chosen by God, had rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and in so doing, had rejected the God who sent him. But even more stunning, the Gentiles, pagan idol worshipers, in large numbers were responding in faith to the gospel message when it was preached. Now, in chapters 9 to 11, they were written by Paul 
to explain how and why this seismic shift in salvation history has taken place. For Paul, the analysis of this uh, shift was not an endeavor that he could be dispassionate about because these were his people. And the fact that Israel had rejected their Messiah was for him heartbreaking and gut-wrenching. And yet it was a, a reality that he had to deal with in his own mind and for those who listened to him because this seismic shift was part of God's plan for bringing salvation not only to the Gentiles but ultimately in the end to the Jews also. Now at the end of chapter 10, Paul quotes from Isaiah where God, speaking of Israel, says this, I have spread out my hand to a, all day long to a disobedient and obstinate people. Israel had rejected the Messiah, but the question that would come up then is, has God, as a response, rejected Israel? This is the question that Paul tackles in chapter 11 of Romans. So today what we want to do is see how Paul answers the question and how he goes about sustaining his answer. And in so doing, we're going to learn something about the faithfulness of God uh, and how even in the darkest days, he still maintains a people for his son. So let's pray and get into the text. Father and God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Help us to see this. You're working out a lot of things over a lot of centuries involving a lot of people. And there has been a major shift, Lord, that has come about in salvation history. So we want to understand this and what you're doing through it. And as a result, what you are doing in our lives and perhaps even in our family's lives. So bless us now. Give us grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at this passage, there's several things that we see. First, uh, you can, the first section you can title this, The Question Asked, The Question Asked, and The Answer Given. And that's going to be in the first part of verse 1, 1a, you could call it. The Question Asked and the Answer Given. Second thing we see is the assertion made and the evidence provided. And that's going to be 1b to 4. And finally, the conclusion drawn and the issue clarified. And that's verses 5 to 6. The question asked and the answer given. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Now the reason Paul raises this question is because the Jewish people had rejected Jesus and as a result they were perishing. Of course the Jews themselves didn't see it that way. Very few people who are heading for hell see it in those lights. But there's certainly they at the time would have thought they were saved. Because in the mind of a Jewish person at that time, and even today, the reasoning would go something like this. God has promised salvation to Abraham and to all of his descendants. We are Abraham's descendants. Therefore, as his descendants, we as Jews will all be saved. Now, in the Jewish writing called the Mishnah, in Sanhedrin 10.1, the rabbis write this, all Jewish people will have a share in the world to come. That's their idea of salvation, the world to come, to be resurrected. But even the rabbis at that time knew that there were some exceptions, at least in their mind. Those Jews who denied the truth of the resurrection. Uh, those who worshipped idols would be excluded. The rabbis actually even mentioned some Old Testament characters by name. Balaam, uh, King Jeroboam, uh, Haman, who tried to kill the Jews. Particularly wicked people like these would be damned, but all other Jews had their tickets already stamped, and so they were good to go. They trusted in their ethnic heritage, which John the Baptist told them was a false hope. Do you remember what he said when they came out to the desert? He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with the repentance. And do not say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, from these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. Okay, so Jesus 
told his professed followers, you remember he had people coming after him, and there's a passage in, in um, John chapter 8 where uh, it says, to those who believed in him, Jesus turned and said this, if you continue in my word, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they were puzzled and offended by this. They said, look, we're Abraham's descendants. <laughs> We've never been enslaved anyone. Now that in itself is, a, is ridiculous because they'd been enslaved in Egypt, they'd have been enslaved in Assyria, they'd have been enslaved in Babylon, and they were actually under the boot of Rome right now. But they said, how can you say to us, you'll become free? And Jesus answered and said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin, meaning as an ongoing practice in life, is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does remain forever. So if the son will make you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus acknowledged that they were the physical descendants of Abraham, but he said, you're not the spiritual descendants, as evidenced by the fact that you, didn't believe, you don't believe what Abraham believed and you don't act the way Abraham acted. As a matter of fact, you're trying to kill me. Well, that really set them off. They said, what are you talking about? They said, God is our father. And Jesus said this, no, if God were your father, he said, you would, do the, uh, you would believe me. He said, but you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks from his own nature, a lie, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak to the truth to you, you do not believe me. So these are professed followers of Jesus who he says were not true children of Abraham. They were actually the spawn of Satan, and they prove it by the fact that they wanted to murder him. And by the time you get to the end of this story, they're picking up rocks to stone Jesus. And it wasn't just the, that the majority of Jews rejected the gospel. They tried to hinder the spread of it to other people, that they might be saved. Paul, writing about them to the Thessalonians, said this, they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove, uh, drove us out. They're not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved, with the result that they're always filling up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 to 16. Can you see why Paul's readers might think and conclude that God had rejected his people Israel. But has he? Is he done with the nation of Israel? I mean, did they have their chance and that chance has passed so that it's so long, farewell, avida, jain, goodbye? We might expect Paul to have said, yeah, God is done with them, goodbye and good riddance. But he says, no, may it never be. It's impossible. It's inconceivable. It's unimaginable. There's no way that God would reject his people. Why was that unthinkable for Paul? Was it because Israel was a faithful nation? Of course not. They are wicked people, just like all people are wicked by nature. And they had to achieve a level of spiritual hardness where they deserve to be cast away by God. That's why God himself in the last chapter, it ends with these words, him calling them a disobedient and stubborn people. See, the reason that Paul could not even imagine the possibility that God would reject Israel as a nation was not because of them, but because of what was in God. That he's faithful. He's a promise-keeping God. Unlike us, as it says in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of a man that he should change his mind. Does he not speak? Or does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and yet not fulfill? Leviticus chapter 26, after telling about all the horrible punishments God's going to bring upon the nation of Israel if they turn away from him in their stubbornness, he said he eventually will send them off into uh, captivity where they will suffer under the Gentile nations. And yet it says this, yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations 
to be their God. I am the Lord. It's verses like these and many others that insist that despite all their rebellion and sin, including the sin of rejecting their Messiah, God will not give up on the nation so as to break his covenant promises to them. God will and must keep all of his promises, including those to the nation of Israel, because he's a promise-keeping God. And that's why we sing songs that have words like these, that say, Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning in thee. All are thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not, as thou hast been. Thou forever will be. The question asked, has God rejected his people? The answer given, may it never be. Well, that brings us to the second point, though, the assertion made and the evidence provided. What's an assertion? An assertion is a confident or forceful statement of fact or belief. When then-President Clinton addressed the allegations of an affair, about an affair he was alleged to have had with an intern, he said these words, I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anyone to lie, not a single time, never. Those allegations are false, and I need to get back to work for the American people. I remember watching it at the time, and the, and the reporters in the room all stood and gave him a standing ovation. And then afterwards, uh, the commentators, the news commentators said, oh, he spoke with such force and, and confidence. Of course, now we know that he was lying about the whole thing. I remember, uh, I actually videotaped his testimony. And it was interesting because as I watched it later on, I could tell when he was lying because every time he lied, he would look down and then he would finish his question or that question by looking up. Well, Paul made a confident assertion here when he says this, God has not rejected his people that he foreknew. And then he brings forward two examples to back up his assertion. One, his own salvation, and two, the incident that happened on Mount Horeb, or Mount Carmel, with Elijah. Now, before we consider these examples, though, we have to uh, look, consider what Paul is asserting here. Uh, when he asks the question, or when he makes the statement that God has not rejected his people, who is he talking about? Is he talking about the nation as a whole, or is he talking just about the elect that are within it? And secondly, what does it mean when it says that God foreknew them? Now, some commentators, a lot of them would say that, no, what Paul's talking about is that group of people within the nation, God has not rejected them. And that does fit with the text. But I think Paul is actually speaking about the group of people, the broader people, the nation of Israel, because he's going to argue as he goes through chapter 11 that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel and he's going to save them in the end. There's a theology that goes around among especially Reformed people called replacement theology, sometimes supersessionism. It's the idea that the church has replaced Israel in the plan of God and so that all the promises made uh, to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament are just simply fulfilled. Uh, now, Augustine believed that. Um, there's... Uh, there's theologians uh, today who believe that. Michael Vlock from the Master Seminary wrote a book entitled, Has the uh, Church Replaced Israel? And he seeks to refute this idea. So uh, what, here's the second question, though, is what does it mean when Paul says that God foreknew his people? That God foreknew his people. Now, most Christians, when they read that God predestinated those he foreknew, as we read earlier in Romans, they think of it in these terms, that God looked down the corridor of time and he saw that this person would believe in his son, and this person would believe in his son, and this one would, and that one wouldn't, and that one wouldn't, and that one wouldn't. And so what he did was he chose the ones that would believe in his son. The problem with that understanding, and it seems to make sense, foreknow, foreknow that they were going to choose, but the problem is the passage 
passages where it says that doesn't say that God foreknew what people would do, but God foreknew the people. The word for know there, knowledge, gnosko, is the word that's used for an intimate knowledge. So it says that uh, Joseph did not know Mary until after the baby Jesus was born. It means didn't have an intimate knowledge. So pros gnosko means to know, put your affection upon ahead of time. So in the Old Testament book of Amos, Amos chapter 3, verse uh, 2, it says this, the, God says this, you, speaking to Israel, says, you only of all the nations have I known. But the New American Standard translates that you of all the nations I have chosen. That's the idea behind it. Well, what does Paul give as evidence that God has not rejected his people? The first thing he does is he points to himself. He says this, Paul the Apostle, he says, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and the tribe of Benjamin. Now, obviously, God hasn't rejected all of his people because Paul said, I'm one of the people that belongs to Israel. I actually know my tribe. I'm from Benjamin. And even if other people had fallen away, Paul still believed. But this should be an encouragement to us, by the way, because you get people in your life who think, I cannot believe this person would ever get saved no matter what. I want to tell you something. You know who those people are? They're your relatives, right? Because it's easier to believe that about somebody out there than it is someone that's close by to you, whose unbelief you see. But think about it. The Apostle Paul was doing what when he was converted? He was heading out to Damascus to arrest Christians and bring them back. Read this in Acts 9.2. He says, Still Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest to ask for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus, so that when he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And yet, wonder of wonders, as he's going along the way, planning to cut down Christians... Jesus meets him and converts him on the spot. And so people were saying, is this the one? This is the guy who was persecuting? Is this the one who was trying to stamp it out and now he's the one who's proclaiming it? I want to give you some encouragement at this point. Those people that you think are the hardest to reach, when they're saved, usually tend, out to, tend to be the people who are the most zealous. Remember what Jesus said, the one who's forgiven much, loves much? Keep praying for those people. Don't give up on them. And we, in our church, we have a number of times, Stan's dad, we kept praying for him, praying for him, praying for him. He ended up getting saved in the last week of his life. My dad comes to the last week of his life. He knew the gospel and everything. We were praying for him, praying for him. Just kept reading the Bible, same as we did with Stan's dad, reading the Bible. And he got saved 24 hours before he died. And so Dan's son-in-law, Glenn, his dad was dying. And he said, can you put his name on the bulletins would pray for him? Yeah, absolutely. I said, but tell him, his dad's not a believer, just tell him to witness to him, but mainly read him the scripture and then pray for him, pray for him. We were talking to Glenn last week and he said, my dad got saved last week. None of those three look like they're going to get saved. And you got friends and family members you think, oh, it's just be impossible. It's not impossible. God saved Paul and Paul said, look, this proves that God keeps his people and he calls those who belong to him. And so that's the first example that he gives. But the second example he gives is Elijah, the prophet. Most of us are familiar with the story. Remember the northern kingdom of Israel was ruled by a man named Ahab, and his wife was Jezebel. And she was this foreign-born woman, a Phoenician princess, whose father was actually the king of Tyre and the high priest of Baal. And according to the Jewish historian, um, Josephus, she was also the great aunt of uh, Dido, the founder and first queen of Carthage. Now, Jezebel was a strong-willed woman. She wore the pants in the family. 
And uh, she was dedicated uh, to the worship of Baal and Asherah, the uh, fertility goddess. Um, and so she decided to, uh, to make that worship uh, and that religion the state religion. So she employed uh, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, and then she sent them out as missionaries to convert the nation. And evidently, there was a seismic religious shift going on because almost the entire nation had embraced the new state religion. So Elijah called for a showdown at Mount Carmel, a religious duel, as it were, with him on one side and all the false prophets on the other. Each was to call on the name of their God, and the true God would send fire from heaven and burn up the sacrifices that they had set out. And so they went first. You remember how it goes? Oh, Baal, Baal, hear us, send fire from heaven. Nothing happened. Oh, Baal, Baal. And pretty soon they start to dance around. Nothing's happening. And they start to cut themselves and gash themselves. And you remember Elijah, what he did. He started to mock him. You know, I don't think he can hear you. Yell a little louder. So they yelled a little louder. He said, maybe he's, maybe he's out going to the bathroom or something. Maybe, maybe he took a trip. Just keep yelling. Well, this went on for several hours. Nothing happened. We read that they cut themselves with lances and sword, but Baal didn't see. He didn't hear. It says there was no voice. No one answered. Nobody paid attention. Nothing. And now it was Elijah's turn. He took 12 stones and he stacked them on each other, one representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he dug a trench and uh, he put wood on top of the stones and he put the sacrifice on there. And then he asked that water be poured over all the sacrifice and so much so that it filled up the trench that it was dug around it. He wanted to make sure no one thought there was a trick going on here. Then he got down on his knees and he prayed and he said this, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and I've done these things according to your word. He had no sooner gotten off his knees than a giant fireball came down from heaven. Burned up the altar, burned up the sacrifice, dried up all the water, and then he turned and he pointed to the false prophets and he said, Seize them! And they grabbed them, they took them down by the Kidron Brook, and they slaughtered them all there. That was a powerful seismic shift. By the way, you remember the odds started 450 plus 400, that's 850 to 1. But they've been overcome, haven't they? But you remember right after that happened, when word got back to Jezebel, she said, He's going to be dead by tomorrow. And so he stood against the prophets, but he ran against, or ran away from a woman. Now I have to say this, a lot of the commentators fault him there. But come on, you've never been chased for your life. And didn't Jesus tell them, if they, if they persecute you in one city, run to the next? Well, he ran, and he kept running. He ran and ran until he got to the south side of the country. And uh, when he was there, God first allowed him to sleep and regain his strength, and then he came to him and he spoke to him. And he asked him, he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah complained. He said, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. And I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. You ever felt that way as a Christian? You're watching friends who used to follow Christ, and now they all fall away. Your family's rejecting and hating you because of your faith. Those who you thought were faithful leaders that you benefited from their ministry are now giving it up. When pastors leave ministry, they say that the number one reason for it is burnout. But I have a pastor friend, I think he had it right when he said, you know, it's not ministry that wears out a pastor. It's unbelief. It means the unbelief of the people he's ministering to. Well, Elijah felt burned out, washed up, and worn down. In the words of Popeye, Elijah was saying, that's all I can stand, I can't stand no more. 
Have you ever complained about some situation? Just have somebody say to you, oh, it could be worse. My dad used to say that all the time. Well, Elijah didn't believe spiritually could be any worse. It wasn't a matter of seeing the glass half empty rather than half full. The glass had only a drop of water left in it, and he said, I'm the drop. There's a book called The Last of the Mohicans. Well, Elijah thought for sure he was the last of the true believers in Israel. But then God asked this, but what was the divine response? What did God say in response to him? He said, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, notice what God does not say. He doesn't say there's 7,000 people who haven't kept the knee to Baal, and aren't I thankful that I have them? He said, I have kept for myself 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Even during the darkest days when you think the flame of truth has been snuffed out, God still preserves a remnant of true believers. Athanasius contra mund, Athanasius against the world. In his day, almost the entire church had gone apostate and were holding to Arian's false teaching that the idea that Jesus wasn't God incarnate, but a lesser God created by the Father. During those long years of domination in the Catholic Church with worldly popes and corrupt priests, there was a remnant of true believers who God preserved with the true gospel. In the Middle Ages, the Waldensians, the Hussites, the Lollards under John Wycliffe, and when Luther came, the Reformation, and the remnant grew. In Germany, during World War II, most of the churches sold out to the Nazis, but there was a remnant known as the Confessing Church that didn't sell their soul to the devil. And again, in our day, Many well-known, respected evangelical leaders are joining BLM and the social justice movement, and yet they're still faithful followers of Christ proclaiming the true gospel in America. Has God rejected his people? No. He never will. He always preserves a true remnant throughout all ages. This is shown by the example of Paul and in the story of Elijah. That brings us to our last point, though. The comparison made in the issue clarified. He says this in verse 5. He says, In the same way, meaning as it was in Elijah's day, there also comes to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works, since otherwise grace would no longer be grace. In Elijah's day, the overwhelming majority of the nation were apostate. They'd given up the true faith and they were chasing after false gods and they were perishing as a result. But there was a remnant that God had chosen and preserved. So also Paul said in our day, in his day, he said the majority of Israel was perishing because they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And yet God had a small number of faithful Jews chosen by him whose eyes he had opened so that they believed in and clung to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That was true in Elijah's day. It was true in Paul's day. And that is true in our day as well. When the modern nation state of Israel was reestablished in 1948, there was just a handful of Messianic Jews. I think they estimated that there was about six in the entire country. Um, in 1999, they did a survey and found out there were 5,000 people attending Messianic churches, though a number of them were also Arab believers. The last figures that I could find was from 2017. At that time, it's estimated that there's 20,000 people in Messianic congregations. Now, Israel has a population of 6.8 million Jews, so 20,000 is a small fraction of that nation, but it's a faithful and growing remnant. You know, the idea that the faithful remnant is preserved by God is not only true for Israel, but it's also been true in the church. 31% of all the people who inhabit this globe claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. That's 2.3 billion people. What percentage of those do you think are real Christians? 
probably a small fraction. Many people consider themselves Christians because they've been baptized or because they have some church membership, but they're not really trusting in Christ's death as the payment for their sins. Instead, they're trusting in something that they've done. I mean, where's the evidence for a lot of these people that they are true believers? I don't know, what's the percentage of people in America who claim to be Christians? 70%? Could our country be the mess that it is if 70% of the people were born again? Well, we really don't have time to unpack that last verse, so I'm going to have to take that up next week uh, to see the significance of what Paul's saying there. But I want to summarize what we've learned in this as we close up. Here's the first thing. No matter how dark the days, there always has been and always will be true believers who maintain the faith. That's true throughout the history of Israel, and that is going to be true throughout the history of the church. Number two, the faithful remnant is those who are chosen by God and preserved by his power. If you're a genuine believer and you remain one, it's only because of God's grace that you will continue in faith. Peter told us that we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. And here's the last one. You might be heartbroken as you're watching people who claim to be followers of Jesus give into the culture and give up their faith. We've seen this in our families. I know I have. Seen this in our church and among a, a number of well-known evangelical leaders. Don't get discouraged. Those God has chosen, every one of them, will eventually come to faith and Jesus will preserve them, faithful until the end, when he returns. Whatever political earthquakes may occur, whatever religious seismic shifts take place, Jesus' true followers will stand firm in the faith, unshaken, because he's the one who preserves us. And you guys, we're, we're heading for some interesting times in our country, aren't we? But we're going to find out the God who is faithful throughout those centuries is going to be faithful to us still. You can trust him because he's a trustworthy God. Let's pray. Our Father in God, sometimes I stumble over my words when I preach, but you know what? I never stumble on your promises because they're solid. Every person here, Lord, has people they're concerned about who don't know you. Some sitting here today don't know you themselves. But Lord, we know that we can count on you And we know in time you're going to bring in all the elect. So, Father, we pray that you'd give us encouragement in this, that we would not get discouraged, that we would know that Jesus died and he will be satisfied and heaven and earth will be one. So, Father, we pray that you give us grace, give us opportunities, as we asked earlier, for us to witness the people and for our family members to come to Christ. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.